Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. This piece is called Random Thoughts. The Loon's Haunting Call drifts across dark, deep waters. Love's quest is lonely. Majestic mountains tower over valleys of mist. Ships sail away. Lands burst forth with life. Oceans embrace sun-kissed shores. Winter arrives soon. Cosmic bounties flow through infinite dimensions. Flowers lie trampled. Gardens of delight are promised to the faithful. The stew needs some spice. Leaves take turns twirling towards earth. Colored elegance proceeds passing on. Storms rage in the soul. Undertoes course through the heart. Prediction is hard. Politicians speak. As with flapping butterfly wings, chaos ensues. Beautiful sunsets proclaim a rosy forecast. Life goes its own way. Seasons come and go, tides rise up, then ebb away. Truth is eternal. The following short story is titled, Mirror, Mirror. A very rich man lived in a certain country. Because the economy of that nation had been battered by a series of regional wars, droughts, and government scandals, many of the people of the country were extremely poor. Fortunately, the man who was rich was also quite generous. With the blessings and encouragement of his wife, he spent a considerable portion of his wealth on those whose material circumstances often were bordering on the edge of disaster and who, as a result, needed help just to stay alive. A variety of people were of the opinion that if not for the charitable nature of this man, many families in the country would have perished. Whatever the truth of this opinion might have been, no one doubted the importance of this man's contributions to promoting the general welfare of the country. Rather than have his employees distribute his financial and material gifts, the rich man liked to take his wife, travel about the country, learn about people who were in need, and give to these people in a quiet, indirect way, so the latter individuals would not be embarrassed publicly due to their impoverished 
status. The man spent half the year engaged in his various businesses and the other half of the year was devoted to acts of charity. Because of his kind and generous nature, he became a beloved figure. Everyone was happy to see him and his wife since the people knew that the couple's appearance soon would be followed by help being given to the needy families in the area. During one of their charitable forays, they stopped at a local restaurant. While eating their meal, they couldn't help overhearing part of a conversation in the booth behind them. Apparently, someone in the next town was claiming to be a source of greater charity than the rich man and his wife. Since the couple had never heard of anyone else in the country helping the poor of the country to the extent that they were doing, the two were somewhat mystified by what they were hearing. In addition, the rich man was a little saddened to hear the news. He felt guilty for the trace of sadness that was present, but being human, he had taken a certain amount of pride in his charitable work, and therefore the idea that someone else might be outdoing him in such activities generated a small amount of envy in him towards the individual about whom he and his wife were hearing as they were eating their meal. The rich man decided he would investigate this matter further when they arrived at the town in question. First, he would send out discreet inquiries concerning what he had heard and see if he could learn anything further. Upon arriving in the designated town, the couple went to the hotel where they had standing reservations during such visits. They settled in, and the wealthy individual set his plan in motion. The following day, one of the people whom the rich man had approached for purposes of learning more about his rival in charity phoned and said he had looked into the matter as requested and had been able to discover a name and address for the person being sought by the wealthy visitor. The information was given, and the rich man decided that tomorrow he would make some excuse to his wife set off on his own and see if he could meet with the man about whom he had heard in the restaurant. Since the town was not that large, the philanthropist didn't require a great deal of time to locate the address he had been given. However, he was rather surprised because the house at which he arrived was in the poorest part of the community. He knocked on the door and only a few seconds passed before the knob turned and the door was opened. An elderly man in ragged clothes stood before him. The rich man said, Are you Mr. Davis, Carl Davis? The elderly man nodded in the affirmative and replied, To whom do I owe my gratitude for having visited my humble home? The wealthy visitor identified himself and a look of recognition raced across the old man's face. The poor man added, Please, come in. I've been expecting you. The rich man stepped through the entrance and saw a room which was as shabbily furnished as the owner's clothes were tattered. The older man invited his guest to a chair near a wooden table, and when the rich man was seated, the host became busy with making tea and putting together a small bowl of fruit. While the old man was preparing some refreshments, the rich man became preoccupied with wondering how his host had known he was coming. Had one of the people whom he had asked to make discreet inquiries slipped up somewhere, and somehow, 
Word of the rich man's interest had made its way back to the elderly gentleman who was puttering about the room. The old man brought the things he was preparing to the table and encouraged the rich man to select whatever he liked, saying, I'm sorry, there is not much to offer, but whatever I have, I am very happy to share with you. The rich man waved his hands in a way that suggested he was content with whatever his host had prepared. The two ate in silence for a short while. Not knowing quite how to broach the subject in which he was interested, the rich man spoke about the weather and asked a few questions about his host's family. The poor man responded with polite but brief replies. Finally, the rich man said, You know, on the way to this town, I stopped in a restaurant, and quite by accident, my wife and I overheard a very interesting conversation in the booth next to ours. And believe it or not, you seem to be the topic of that conversation. Oh, said the poor man, I can't imagine why anyone would be talking about me. Well, explained the rich man, forgive me for saying this, since I see that you are a very humble person. But the people who were talking were saying you had been making claims that you were a greater source of charity than I and my wife, and I thought I would try to meet with the sort of individual being described by those people and see what truth there was to the story. Looking around the room, the rich man continued on with, I feel certain that someone is playing a trick on you or trying to create difficulties for you. The old man replied, What you heard in the restaurant is true. I have made such claims. The rich man looked in a rather bemused manner at the man sitting across from him. Mr. Davis, he said, I'm not trying to be rude, but unless these surroundings are a rather elaborate charade of some sort, I really don't see how you possibly could believe you are a greater source of charity than I am. Yes, the old man responded, I can well appreciate why you might come to such a conclusion. But I believe you misunderstand the real nature of charity. For while it is true that you and your wife are very generous to poor people such as myself, nevertheless what you do not seem to grasp is that whatever you give to us in the way of material or financial help is used up in a very short period of time whereas the blessings which come to you through us by virtue of our being recipients of your generosity last an eternity. If we were not poor, you would have no one to whom to be generous, and therefore you would lose the blessings which come via such acts. Therefore, by being poor, we give opportunities of blessings for you which are far more spiritually enduring and beneficial than any of the financial or material gifts you may give to us. The old man paused briefly and then asked, So, is it not true that I and people like me are a far greater source of charity than you are? Is it not true that something far more enduring in the way of blessings comes to you through us than comes to us through you? Today's edition of Musical Interludes is entitled Breeze.
From the deepest recesses of the Orono Bogwalk in Orono, Maine, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. This week's meditative essay is Death. We are born to die. Just like managers are hired to be fired, we have been programmed for death. Death is in our nature, and birth is the first step towards fulfilling that nature. Someone once said the only certainties in life are death and taxes. This is no longer true. With the advent of tax shelters, legal specialists, clever accountants, and just your ordinary garden-variety, old-fashioned brand of cheating, taxes are no longer a certainty for some of us. Death, on the other hand, cannot be cheated. There are no havens and shelters which permit death to be written off as life is depreciated over time. There are no clever accountants who can set up the ledgers so we can avoid paying death what it is due. There are no legal loopholes which permit us to slip past death's auditing process. Death is very egalitarian. Death offers a flat-rate system in which everyone owes and pays the same fixed fee. The intransigent nature of death has not stopped some people from desperately seeking to discover ways to circumvent the inevitable. Cryogenics, traveling at the speed of light, intense gravitational fields, magic, and the occult are just a few of the possibilities being explored in the hope of having the last laugh at death's expense. Some people praise the quality of longevity, which is believed to come from certain kinds of diet. Some talk about the life-prolonging properties of various roots and herbs. Medicine and other health fields trumpet their capacity to push back death's appointment with us. Even if there were some modicum of truth in the above claims, none of these remedies has the quality of sufficiency. Sufficiency belongs to God alone. God may choose on certain occasions to work through diet or roots or medicine in order to sustain life. However, diets or roots or medicine on their own are not sufficient to affect any benefits whatsoever unless God wishes this to be so. The origins of causality do not begin with the properties of diets, roots, and medicine. Rather, diets, roots, and medicine have the properties they do so that on occasion they may be a venue for God's grace. In other words, the inherent nature of various diets, roots, herbs, and medicines is in having a capacity to transmit certain kinds of benefit from God's command. In the absence of God's authorization, no benefit is conferred. We try different things because we have learned that in the past such things have been associated with, say, health or long life. We begin to believe the quote-unquote magic is in the thing and fail to understand the thing is merely the locus of manifestation for God's grace. The thing is merely that which God calls upon from time to time to serve as a certain kind of medium of transmission. Many people follow diets or they consume herbs and roots on a regular basis or they receive medical treatment or they take all manner of vitamins and minerals and yet the benefits are limited or non-existent. 
Not everyone benefits equally, if at all. Should one infer from the foregoing that one is a fool to seek assistance in the form of a diet or herbs or medical treatment, the answer to this question is no. By all means, try to find those remedies and health aids which have a strong track record, so to speak, for being a venue for the transmission of certain kinds of benefit. Nonetheless, one also should keep in mind and heart the following understanding. Whether or not the remedy works and to what extent is up to God. People who are attempting to discover the secret passageway to immortality make the mistake of believing death is fixed by the properties of things rather than by the decree of God. Such people believe creation is somehow independent of the Creator. As a result, they tend to believe the invention or the discovery of an elixir of life is but a matter of the appropriate technology of exploitation. We fear death, yet there is a lot of confusion and uncertainty interspersed with our fears. Do we fear death in and of itself, or do we fear death for what may come before and after the moment of our demise? For example, some people are quite prepared to accept death per se, but do not look forward to the pain and suffering which may precede it. Since death marks a cessation of such physical difficulty, death actually would bring its own strange form of comfort and relief. Some people are obsessed with the moment of death. Is it painful? Do we gasp for breath? Do we experience life draining from our consciousness? Will panic seize us as we become aware of our imminent termination? Since physical death is a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, we don't know quite how to brace ourselves for it. On the other hand, death may be like a lot of things in life, different than we thought it would be. Speculating about the experiential character of the moment of death is just that, speculation. Everyone dies in her or his own way, and we won't know what that way is until we do it. Should we take the advice of the poet who said we ought not to go gentle into that good night? How should we play the death scene? Like some method actor, we look for our motivation in order to know how we should respond to our exit cue. Our motivation will be shaped and colored by the significance we give to the purpose of both life and death. Some of us fear what comes after death. Maybe, for example, there is nothing after death except a death that is oblivious to the universe and to itself. The upside of the foregoing possibility is such oblivion is not conducive to regrets or nostalgia. We won't know what we are missing, and better yet, we won't care. Nothing to be feared in this. Of course, another consideration is that death merely marks a transition from one mode of conscious existence to another mode of conscious existence. This is a kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is there may be eternal life after death. The bad news is we may not like what is eternally ours. The latter case would seem to be a worthy candidate for some degree of trepidation. We may fear death as a harbinger of something much more unpleasant. Since we have difficulty fixating our fear on an amorphous cloud of unknowing, we find the concreteness of death a suitable object in which to invest our fears. 
The Sufi masters look upon death in a variety of ways. All of these perspectives carry important implications for the manner in which one goes about living life. To begin with, for practitioners of the Sufi path, death is a necessary constraint on the arrogance of human beings. Death is indisputable proof we are not in charge of things. Death gives expression to determinate limits on our existence. This is so since no matter how powerful, famous, rich, beautiful, talented, or handsome we may be, we will be humbled in death. If we realize with our heart and soul our vulnerability, we will not be so likely to become arrogant. The realities of the tenuousness of our situation will help us to be humble and modest in our demeanor. Secondly, Sufi masters indicate death introduces a valuable dimension of tension into our lives. We have only a limited amount of time to accomplish whatever we can in this life. Indeed, some of us have less time than others. Few, if any, of us know how much time we have left. We ought to strive to be as efficient as possible with the time we have. Consequently, we should be focused and purposeful in what we do. The fleeting nature of time serves as a reminder that death has come one step closer with each breath we take. Death can be our ally in this regard, encouraging and urging us to take advantage of the time we have. Death can say to us, Look, I am powerless just like you. I go to where I am ordered, and only when I am ordered to do so. For your sake, do what must be done before I am sent to you. From the perspective of the Sufi masters, one should look forward to the time of death. Death frees us from the problems and this world and brings us into closer proximity to the beauty and majesty of God. Since realizing the closeness of God is an essential component to the purpose of our existence, death is the laneway which leads to the fulfillment of our essential purpose. Death stands as the gate which veils our beloved from us. Eager anticipation should characterize our attitudes towards the moment when God opens the gate which will usher us in to the Divine Presence. Finally, the, the teachers of the Sufi path maintain there is a way through which we can prepare for our moment of physical death. If we undergo this preparation, we will be able to embrace physical death with equanimity. The method of preparation involves dying to our own desires, attachments, and passions. We must die to our egos. We must die to our addictions to the world. If we can die this greater death, then according to the Sufi masters, we will be as ready as we can be for physical death and whatever comes after it. Unfortunately, most of us are in far deeper denial concerning the necessity for this kind of spiritual death then we are in denial concerning the fact that physical death is bearing down on us like a freight train with a schedule to keep. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Mm -hmm.